Well, Chuck Swindoll shares the story of the legendary football coach Vince Lombardi's memorial, excuse me, memorable start with the Green Bay Packers. It's said that in 1959, Coach Lombardi joined the team at a low point in their storied history. They had lost 10 of 12 games the previous season, and under Coach Lombardi, the Packers then lost five consecutive games to start off the new campaign, and then he understood what had happened. The team had lost focus on the fundamentals. And so the story goes that Lombardi gathered his team together, and he announced, gentlemen, this is a football. This is a football. Perhaps you've heard that story before. In some way, Luke chapter 10, I believe, and the famous parable of the Good Samaritan with the Lord Jesus is Jesus's Vince Lombardi moment. But instead of a football, we find our HC, that of course is head of church, our HC, instructing his disciples, and more specifically this morning, an overconfident religious expert in the fundamentals of true Christian discipleship and of love for one's own neighbor. Now, this notable exchange here in Luke chapter 10 is unique to Luke. I find that really interesting, that as famous as the parable of the Good Samaritan is, only Luke records it. Virtually the entire section of Luke chapter 10, verse 1, all the way up to Jesus' triumphal entry, Luke chapter 19, verse 27, contains material that is unique to Luke, exclusively recorded by the good doctor and the gospel historian, Luke. That is, beginning in, nine, in Luke 9, verse 51, all of the movement in Luke's gospel is charging and surging ahead towards Jerusalem and towards Jesus' sacrificial offering for sin and resurrection from the dead. Notice what Luke 9.51 states. He writes, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That is such an important verse in Luke's gospel. And it's important for this reason. This entire section, beginning in 9.51, all the way up to the end of chapter 19, and Jesus' triumphal entry, contains Christ's curriculum concerning the cost and contours of true discipleship. He's teaching us what it looks like to live in the kingdom of God. That is, over the last six months or so, moving methodically and mercifully on his mission towards redemption, Jesus the Messiah instructs his followers on the radical nature of Christian discipleship. Take up your cross and follow me. Now, if you've been with us in this series so far in this new year that I've been calling Encounters with Jesus, you may recall that the question which begins this highly instructive encounter is a quite familiar one. It's the question found in Luke 10, verse 25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put Jesus to the test. Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? This first question of two questions put to Jesus by this lawyer is the very same question that we considered a few weeks ago from Matthew chapter 19 and verse 16 in that story with Jesus and the rich young ruler. That rich young ruler, mind you, was humbled, or at the very least, he walks away sorrowful, if you recall, on account of his great pride and his many, many possessions. 
but were struck at the similarity of questions between uh, this lawyer and that rich young ruler. Teacher, what good deed must I do in order to inherit eternal life? Well, back in Luke chapter 10, we are told that it's no rich young ruler, but here it is a lawyer. And the Greek word for lawyer here is not so much a civil lawyer as it is a religious lawyer, a, an expert in the law of Moses, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. This lawyer puts this question to Jesus, and it really is, I think, an insincere question. It's a gotcha question in the context. This individual, you'll notice, is a learned theologian. He's a master of the minutia contained in the law of Moses. This guy would have been a standout, and I know Joel is not in the room at the moment, but he would have been a standout at next week's Torah trivia night here at the local synagogue. He would be a standout for sure. Well, notice that Luke tells us that this man stood up, which was the common practice of the day. If you wanted to be recognized and to respectfully ask a question of a teacher, he stands up to put Jesus in his place. That's really what he's trying to do. Jesus is standing and instructing. Everyone else is sitting and listening. But this man stands up to get Jesus' attention in order to put him to the test. Now that word test, it's another Greek word, ekparazo, is used only four times in the entire New Testament. And it doesn't have a very nice connotation. Again, it's not a benign question. Jesus, I've been perplexed by this particular question. It's, it's not that sort of inquisition. He's pressing Jesus. He's wanting to embarrass the Lord Jesus Christ. The word literally means to make trial of. He's putting Jesus on trial, if you will. He wants to test Jesus, to find some fault, some flaw in the Lord's reasoning and religion. The point is that this lawyer stood up respectfully in that setting in order to silence this raggedy rabbi from Galilee. But by the end of this famous encounter, notice that it's the lawyer, not the Lord, who will be schooled on the true meaning and fundamentals of the law and of discipleship. The question, and it's a good question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? seems to have meant something a bit different, slightly different then to a first century Jew than it means to us today as 21st century Christian evangelicals. That is, for us, the phrase eternal life, what must I do to inherit eternal life, has been baptized in a manner of speaking with an evangelical or a gospel meaning and significance such that when we hear the question, what shall I do to inherit eternal life, we almost hear the man asking Jesus, what must I do in order to go to heaven when I die? That's, I'm sure that's the way that many of us have read this passage again and again. Jesus, what must I do to be saved? But this very likely was not the man's intent and not the man's meaning. Now, you might recall some of Jesus' other words, words of correction that he spoke to a few Jewish leaders who were also questioning his authority over in John chapter 5, verses 39 and 40. In that particular passage, Jesus confronts some religious rulers and leaders, and he says, you search the scriptures 
Because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they who bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Very similar construction. Very similar idea behind these two passages. Is Jesus saying you refuse to have eternal life in heaven one day? Or is he talking about something else? Look, one of the famous rabbis of the first century, a rabbi by the name of Hillel, said once that he that gets to himself words of Torah, the law, gets to himself eternal life. In other words, the Jewish mindset was to embrace and to abide by the law was to have eternal life. The fact of the matter is that all Jews believed in the first century that they were God's privileged people. They were the in crowd. First century Jews believed that they had the inside track on eternal life itself as children of the patriarch Abraham. Therefore, what this lawyer was really asking Jesus was not so much about length of life in the future, an eternal, unending sort of life, but rather a kind of fullness of life, a depth of life, a completeness of life in the here and now. Teacher, what must I do according to the law to possess the fullness of life with God today? That's really the sense of the question behind this lawyer. And I think it's critical to recognize the distinction. Well, notice, if you will, that Jesus, Jesus, how does he answer this lawyer's question? He doesn't. He answers his question, but not with a straight answer. He answers with a question of his own, which, by the way, is an incredible evangelistic strategy. It's a wonderful way of dealing with objections and issues, especially when they are less than sincere, less than genuine. Fire back a question, hopefully a noble-hearted question, to the question that you yourself receive. But notice that that is exactly what Jesus does. He responds to the lawyer's question with a question of his own, namely, well, what is in the Bible? What is written in the law, and how do you read it? Jesus sends the inquisitor right back to the source of the law. You're the expert, Jesus says. And again, I don't imagine even in the slightest a bit of snarkiness in the Lord. He says, what does the law say? You ask me what you must do to inherit eternal life according to the law. What does the law say? You know the book. You know the word. What does it say? What what do you really have to do in order to live the the fully orbed, the, the robust life of discipleship? What does it say? And notice that without missing a beat, this lawyer has an, an answer. Verse 27. And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Now here, I imagine a bit of a smug grin. I really do. This guy has the answer to all the hardest questions. And this actually, friends, is a softball question. This is right at the very heart of the Torah. Without even the slightest bit of hesitation, this learned expert made a beeline for the heart of the books of Moses. 
He made a beeline for the heart of Torah. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. He doesn't quote that, but I think we can actually read that into what he does state. Verse 5 says, and this is what he quotes, Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. Now, if you don't know, that Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 is what is commonly called the Shema. This is Article 1 of the Mosaic Covenant, of, of the Mosaic Law. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is alone. There is no God like ours. It's not so much a statement about the fact that there's, uh, you know, God, God is a unity, but rather there is no God besides our God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Faithful Jews in the first century would have repeated Deuteronomy 6 verse 4 every single day out loud. It was a part of what you did. This is what everybody knew. This was basic information to the simplest-minded first-century Jew, let alone a lawyer, an expert in the law. Additionally, notice that the lawyer referenced Article 2 of the Mosaic Covenant, Leviticus 19, verse 18, which says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. These are really the two foundational elements of the Mosaic Covenant. Love God supremely. Love others sincerely. That's really the idea behind this. As an expert of God's law, this man would have known that under the stipulations of the Mosaic Covenant, obedience was the key to living under the fullness of God's blessing. Let me say that again. Under the the Mosaic economy, obedience to God was how you received the blessing of God. Do you understand that? How do you, how do you have eternal life in, in his question? It is to obey. To obey is to have eternal life, to, to have the blessing of God poured out upon your life in the here and the now. Listen to what Leviticus 18 verses 4 and 5 states. Moses writes, you shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. Notice, if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now, the prophet Ezekiel will pull at this string later on uh, in the, against the background of the exile, writing this, Ezekiel 20, verse 11 and following. I gave them my statutes and made known to them my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths as a sign between me and them and that they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They did not walk in my statutes, but rejected my rules by which if a person does them, he shall live. And my Sabbaths they greatly profane. Obedience is the path to living in the fullness of life. This so-called expert in the law wanted simply a rule. He wanted a set of rules by which he could merit the bounty and the blessing of God. This is the very epitome of man's religion. The problem, though, was that he forgot one fundamental reality and purpose of the law. 
the law was given to expose sin, to reveal sin, not to save men. The law was not given to be our Savior. The law was given to drive us to the Savior. We are held, as according to Galatians chapter 3, under the law as a guardian until Christ would come. Romans 7 verse 7 says, Apart from the law, I would not have a knowledge of sin. This man actually thought he was really doing well according to the rules of the law. But I think he knew there was still something missing. There's still something missing. Well, listen, here's actually a bit of the surprising irony in the first half of this great story. The lawyer's answer is 100% correct. Notice that. If you remember over in Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 to 40, this is a very familiar passage to most of us. On a different occasion with a different person Jesus is interacting with, he is asked a question. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Do you remember his answer? Well, let me share it with you. And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. What do we notice? but that Jesus' answer is precisely the same as this lawyer's answer. Which leads me to understand and leads us to understand that what, the, what this man was missing was not new information, but was radical transformation. He needed to be transformed. He did not necessarily need to be informed. He needed to be transformed. This is why in Luke 10 verse 28, in our passage, Jesus' response to the lawyer is so stunningly subversive and strikes this man to the very heart of his being. Verse 28 says this, and he, that is Jesus, said to him, that's right, you have answered correctly, do this and you will live. Um, guys, for us today, the punch of these words is so diminished. It's so diminished. The secret, listen to me this morning, the secret of experiencing the fullness and the blessing of life with God is still today obedience. Listen to me. It is still obedience today. But Jesus affirmed this man's orthodoxy, his right belief, but he echoes this with Leviticus 18.5, do this and you will live. What, we're, what we have to hear Jesus does not lower the bar for us. Obedience is still the way to blessing. But we must come face to face with the reality this lawyer was missing. We cannot obey the law. We must have someone obey the law for us. You see, both Jesus and this lawyer knew that the man had not kept these two fundamental Commandments, love God supremely, love your neighbor sincerely, let alone the 611 other commandments that the Jews were required to keep. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus simply says to him, love God and love your neighbor fully and flawlessly. Do this and you will live. And right there, 
right in that moment, if you, don't hear, if you didn't hear that noise, that was this man's self-righteous bubble popping. We're reading the story through Paul today. We are reading the story through Paul through a passage like Galatians 2, verse 16, which says this. In our smugness, we read it. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And we should all say amen to that. And yet we stare down our long noses at this lawyer as if, as if we are all that different from him. We read this lopsided battle of wits between a lawyer and a lawgiver with the knowledge of Romans chapter 3, verses 20 and 22, fully in view. It says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Listen to me carefully. Without obedience, that is without a perfect love for God and a true love of one's neighbor, without holiness, nobody is going to see the Lord. No one is going to see the Lord let alone experience the robust fullness of life, which is at the heart of this plea for eternal life that this lawyer poses to Christ. That is why Jesus came. That is why he came. He came to provide the righteousness that we so desperately need and that we so disappointingly fail to ever produce. We needed his, not just his death, we needed his perfect obedience. Jesus came to bring the obedience that we need, that we receive in our account by grace and through faith, such that we might truly experience the fullness of God's blessing and life and peace with him forever. John 10, verse 10, one of my favorite verses. Verse 9 says, I am the door. John 10, verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and destroy. I came that you might have life and that you might have it in abundance. So many of us read that verse and we say, okay, this is lay away life. This is eternal life. I'm on my own now. Someday in the future, Jesus is going to make my life so happy. No, Jesus says, I came that you might have life now. I think it also includes life forever, but it means something about now. Without faith. It is impossible to please God. God demands nothing less than perfect obedience in order to have eternal life. And yet, fortunately for us, God provides nothing less than perfect obedience through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. What the lawyer was missing was staring him in the face. It was Jesus himself. That's what he was missing. The lawyer stood up to put Jesus down. He confidently asserted that the, that the key to eternal life was a fully orbed love for God and a genuine concern for one's neighbor. In short, this religious man looked at the law as a means of justifying his very own existence. But in the presence of perfection personified, in the presence of Jesus, this 
truly holy teacher of Torah, the lawyer knew that even on his best day, he came up woefully, woefully short. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, that's a bit of the stunning surprise in the first half of this passage and the first question. In the first part of this story, Jesus answers the lawyer's insincere question with an instructive question of his own, but not so in the second half. In the second part of the story, this familiar story that we read to our children so often, I want you to observe that Jesus will answer the lawyer's second evasive question with a shocking and probing story, a parable that instructs this seeking heart and silences the self-righteous individual. Now, once again, understand, I believe the lawyer had been hit hard by the law right then and there. Guys, that's what the law does. The law was given really to expose, to be a mirror for us in our brokenness, but also in God's holiness. He was probably stunned a bit. Maybe this was the first time he had ever been put in his place by a, uh, a visiting rabbi. And he was not a little embarrassed. He knew that he was not living in the fullness of life with God by loving the Lord supremely, let alone loving his neighbor. However, errantly and arrogantly, he thought he could possibly save face by doubling down on this question of love for neighbor. Surely he could stump Jesus on the technicality of who his neighbor was. And so continue reading with me in verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus... And who is my neighbor? Now understand that particularly at this time in the first century, to the Jewish person, a neighbor, meaning someone nearby, somebody from your community, was predominantly and overwhelmingly limited to Jewish people. To a Jew, their neighbor were other Jews. The, those who were unclean, such as Gentiles and the half-breed race of the Samaritans that are going to show up prominently in just a moment, were certainly excluded from the law's mandate to love one's neighbor. And so when this lawyer says, and who is my neighbor, he feels sort of good about putting Jesus to the test here. I love my fellow Jews. You see, he had a narrow interpretation, a narrow understanding of who his neighbor was. By the way, you'll notice, and I won't linger here, you'll notice that if you read on in Luke's gospel, in two specific places, Luke 16 and Luke 18, Jesus is going to press the nerve of those who want to justify themselves. In Luke 16, verse 14, uh, the word says this, The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things that Jesus had said, and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Don't justify yourself. Fall on the mercy of God is what you need to do. And to highlight that even more, look at Luke 18 and verse 11 and following where we have this parable. I think it was really a reenactment in a sense. Luke 18 verse 11, the Pharisee, you know this passage, standing by himself, prayed thusly, God, I thank thee that I am not like other men extortioners and unjust and adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. And then in contrast, 
The tax collector standing far off, the Bible says, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And what does Jesus say? I I tell you, this man, this tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The lawyer, desiring to justify himself before not only Jesus, but those listening around him, he must have been embarrassed, was focused on the limit of those who deserved his kindness. He had, you might say, a minimalist view of loving one's neighbor. But Jesus, directing the, uh, desiring to instruct this man in the true meaning of God's law, told a parable intended to highlight the lavish extent of God's mercy to those who don't deserve it. The lawyer asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? The point of the parable of Jesus is, am I being a neighbor to others? The lawyer said, who is my neighbor? Jesus said, be a neighbor, and the moment that you are, you will find a neighbor in need, someone who needs your help. Well, again, the verbal scene that Jesus will now paint would have been all too familiar to his listeners with one notable exception. The Bible tells us in verse 30, and Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. I can almost imagine somebody in the crowd saying, I saw that on the news last week. I mean, this was not a rare occurrence in that time. See, the journey from Jerusalem to Jericho was a mere matter of about 17 miles. However, as Jesus' audience and this lawyer certainly knew, this was a notoriously rough and bloody road which descended very sharply some 3,000 feet over the course of just 20 or so miles. This road was well-traveled, but it was mighty, mighty dangerous. In Jesus' parable, an unidentified man, I think he's left unidentified uh, specifically and purposefully, but I believe undoubtedly they were to understand he himself was a Jew, was jumped, was beaten half to death, and stripped naked. Now, many of us read right by that detail, but I think that detail is important. The point, I believe, is that everything that could possibly have identified that man externally was stripped off of him, so that we are left to imagine a mass of broken humanity lying on the side of the road. He is every man. He is any human being lying in a mass, bloodied, bruised, and beaten, left for dead. Be it a Jew or a Gentile, it doesn't really matter, but I think it was a Jew. Jesus continues his lesson in verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Don't really know what the reaction of the crowd might have been. Maybe a few gasps, a few, really? Surprising uh, frowns or whatnot. Verse 32, so likewise a Levite when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Let's pause there for a moment. Remember what Jesus is doing here, guys. The lawyer wants to know the answer to a question. Okay, give me the bare minimum. Who is my neighbor? Who am I supposed to love? 
But Jesus is painting an altogether different picture. What does it look like for me to be a neighbor? That's the question Jesus is is answering. Look, a priest in Jesus' day would have been a well-respected, even a paragon of godliness and ethical virtue. One commentator noted that Jericho was likely a favorite neighborhood of priests in that time due to its dry climate and perhaps its close proximity to neighboring Jerusalem. I think it's helpful for us to recognize that while all priests were Levites, the second passerby, not all Levites were priests. And the distinction being priests served in the temple. Levites assisted around the temple. Maybe that helps you understand it. But together, the priest and the Levite represented the religious ruling class of Israel. This would have been like the minister and maybe a head deacon walking in the story in today's context. Notice their movement, that they are coming from Jerusalem to Jericho. In other words, the point I think that is being made here is they were coming from their official religious duties to God and worship. We might put it this way. They had just left church and they were on their way back home when they saw this bruised and bloodied body lying there on the side of the road, desperate and in need of help. But instead of stopping, they literally crossed the street and continued on their way undisturbed. By the way, this is going to prove relevant in just a moment. Jesus' parable actually echoes the common practice of many Jews in that time when they were traveling north to south or south to north from Jerusalem to Galilee or from Galilee to Jerusalem, they would literally cross the street, meaning the Jordan River. They would cross the street into the region of Perea, which might have been where Jesus was giving this particular story, to the right side of the River Jordan in order to avoid entirely the region of Samaria. They would cross the street and leave them on their own. Such was their deep-seated hatred and disdain for this inferior, mixed-blooded race of people called the Samaritans. Well, the priest and the Levite had been to church to do their service. Maybe they were on their way home feeling good about themselves. They saw what was most certainly a fellow Jew lying helpless on the road, and they decided to keep going on their own. So here's a simple question for you guys. Were they neighborly to the man on the road? Well, the answer, of course, is no. No one would say they were being a good neighbor to this particular man. And here comes the real twist of the story, verse 33. But a Samaritan. And in the original language, guys, the word Samaritan is in the emphatic position. Jesus minces no words. He throws it right out there in front of everybody. A Samaritan. As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. The word compassion is that word that I feel every time that silly commercial, not silly, but that that commercial that has all the puppy dogs. You know that commercial? Maybe for the SPCA or whatever it is, and they they need a home, and that commercial comes on, and your, your, your innards get mushy, and you start to kind of cry inside. That's the word. That's the word here. You're you're struck 
emotionally, but you're, you're almost provoked to do something. That's the word. It's not used very often in the New Testament, but it's used several times. This Samaritan was moved in his emotions to action. He was moved to action. In fact, this is the very same word that is used repeatedly of Jesus in the Gospels when he is moved to compassion over the people who are like sheep without a shepherd, harassed and helpless. This is a divine response. This is godly love. Well, notice that the heel becomes the hero. Shockingly, this despised Samaritan demonstrates what true love of neighbor is supposed to look like. Incredibly, the good Samaritan, and that is an oxymoronic phrase to any self-respecting first century Jew, for there were no good Samaritans to them, performs, I think, specifically five acts of love for this neighbor. One for every book of the law. Maybe I'm making more of it, but I find some irony here. The Samaritans accepted only the Pentateuch. They did not take the the writings or the prophets. Only the law was what the Samaritans believed was from God. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The irony of this Samaritan's obedience of love to neighbor is astonishing. Notice what he does. Verse 34. When he went to the injured man and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Here we find three acts of kindness in rapid succession. Notice firstly, he disinfects the man's injuries with the wine. That's what the purpose of the wine would certainly have been. Secondly, he soothes the man's sores with oil. And thirdly, he wraps the man's wounds with fresh bandages. Verse 34, part B says this, then he set him on his own animal and brought him to the inn or to an inn and took care of him. I'm not sure if this is one act or multiple acts, but the point is that after triaging the situation and after treating this man's injuries on the field, he takes the man to a local inn in order for him to convalesce, to recover. But that's not all. Verse 35, notice it. And the next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. The Samaritan did not just Uber the man to the inn and split, we might say. He stayed. And more than that, he kept vigil over the victim until the next morning. He loved him. He stayed. And then, not only that, he covered the man's expenses because had he not, the man, without having a wallet, without having any means, he would have become a slave, perhaps, to this particular innkeeper. This amount of money, the two denarii that he offered to pay, would have, there's different commentaries that say different things about this, would have been sufficient for two to three weeks' stay for this man in the inn. It's not just a little bit of love. It's a whole lot of grace. It's a whole lot of grace. And then he says, as he's leaving for whatever he was passing through the area, he pledged to come back and pay any additional expenses that the man might have incurred in his absence. Does this sound like anybody to you? It really should. Gentlemen, this is a football, is what Jesus is saying. Church, this is what it looks like to love your neighbor. 
This is what it looks like to be a neighbor. Jesus then asks the lawyer a really simple question. Which of these three, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Silence. Silence at least for a few minutes. I ask you, what does love really look like? Let me read a few verses. Romans 13, verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves has fulfilled the law. Or how about Colossians 3, verses 12 to 14? Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. I ask you again, what does love look like here? Well, Peter tells us, 1 Peter 4, verses 8 and 9, above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. And finally, 1 John 3, 16 and following, by this we know love. That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's what love looks like. Sadly, though not surprisingly, this religious expert in law could not even muster up the moral courage in response to Jesus' question, which of these three... The priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan proved himself to be a neighbor. He could not muster the words to say it was the Samaritan. Notice what he says. Verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. See, those who simply want to justify themselves before God want to ask the question, limiting question, minimalizing question, God, who is my neighbor? But Jesus reverses the question to paint a different scene, a scene that reveals the true nature of divine love and our response to it in a universal neighborhood. Jesus says the question isn't who is my neighbor. The, the question is, am I proving to be a neighbor to others? That's the question. These are the fundamentals of the heart of God's law. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. You can't get any more basic than that. But how often do we defy these basics of obedience? This is the center of Christian discipleship. Remember where Jesus is heading along the rough and bloody road to Calvary. And if we are going to walk with the Messiah, we must walk the bloody road ourselves. And we dare not bypass the mass of humanities lying around us on the street. This is what is required in order to step into the fullness of God's blessing, not just in heaven, but here and now. To roll up your sleeves and get a little dirty in your faith. When you do that, you will experience the blessing of God like you have never experienced it in your life. The gospel reminds us as I close that Jesus himself came to our neighborhood. 
The gospel reminds us that Christ came purposefully and he came compassionately. That Jesus saw us lying there, we ourselves bruised by the world and beaten down by Satan and covered with blood, the blood of our own rebellion against him. But he didn't cross the street, he went to the cross. Greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. John 15, verse 13. Yet we were not God's friends even when Christ died. We were his enemies, according to Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Have you ever noticed the gospel so central in the parable of the Good Samaritan? It is. You see, Jesus stopped. You see, Jesus stooped. Jesus washed our wounds with the wine of his own blood. And then he soothed our souls with the oil of his own spirit. And then he bound up our burdens in the garments of his own righteousness. And he brought us to the inn of his father's house and paid for our recovery, even for our resurrection, with extravagant grace. And not only that, but he's promised to come back and pay whatever else debt we have incurred, because that's just the kind of Savior he is. Friends, Jesus is the neighbor that the law requires all of us to be. And as we walk with him, He's the neighbor that all of us can be. Would you bow with me as I close? Almighty God and Father, we thank you for the clarity and the conviction and, Lord, the comfort of your word. We praise you this morning. Thank you, Lord, for the masterful way that Jesus, our Messiah, taught and instructed. And not only that, but how he proved and displayed what real love is over and over again. Lord, help us and forgive us for each of us, I'm sure. If we really look into the mirror of the law, we would say we fall short of living out these truths. But at the very same time, Lord, may we not live in con condemnation or guilt, but rather in gratitude and under grace as we look to Jesus, as we look to the one in whom the law was fulfilled by, and we receive the blessing and the, the grace that he alone provides. Thank you, Jesus, for this message. We give you the praise as we pray in his name.